provides a fitting backdrop for today's text, as we'll see a little bit later on. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that it is by your Holy Spirit that you have prompted men of old to record your words for us. And yet you use still their personal experiences to shape this word and the things that they lived through, including our text for today and including as we consider the life of David. And so, Father, we pray that just as it was relevant for them, it is relevant for us today. And so I pray that you would translate this word to each one of our circumstances, Lord. Wherever we are today, may we find hope and encouragement from your word and by your spirit. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is Thanksgiving Sunday, and I've entitled today's message, When Hope is All You Have. On February the 26th of 1943, during the height of World War II, a B-17 Flying Fortress bomber piloted by Captain Hugh G. Ashcroft Jr. of Charlotte, North Carolina, was limping its way back home from a bombing mission over Nazi Germany and to its airbase in England. The plane was dubbed the Southern Comfort. It had been riddled by German anti-aircraft fire and was severely damaged. With a hole four feet square in the rudder, the nose shattered and the number three engine spewing oil and flames. As they approached the shores of Britain, Ashcroft told his men over the radio, Those who want to, please pray. Then, almost miraculously, Ashcroft proceeded to skillfully coax the stricken aircraft back to its home base and landed it safely. It's generated such news back home in his home state of North Carolina that, that he became an overnight sensation, and they became known as the crew that prayed their damaged plane back home. Now, this story about Ashcroft's bravery and his appeal to his crew to pray it inspired a songwriter named Harold, Adams, uh, Harold Adamson, along with his musician and composer, Jimmy McHugh, to write a new patriotic song, which is based on the experience, which they entitled, Coming In on a Wing and a Prayer. Well, this song, Coming In on a Wing and a Prayer, it quickly coined the new expression, On a Wing and a Prayer, and it came to be widely used to describe doing anything that was against the odds, done under extremely difficult or even grim circumstances, and hoping that some combination of human determination and divine intervention would ultimately bring about success. Now, you've probably heard or used this expression at some point in your life, that you've, you're doing something on a wing and a prayer, right? And this is the story of where... It originated from. And inevitably, there comes moments in your life, whether you've used this expression or not, where it feels like all you have left is a wing and a prayer. Perhaps some of you feel like you're at such a point right now. On his blog, a terminal cancer patient described being at just such a point in his own life and what it required from him. This is what he wrote. One thing stage four cancer requires is hope. Hope is a big thing. It's what keeps you going. It's what keeps you looking for that next clinical trial. It's what makes life something that you're grateful for. 
It's what I call when hope is all you have. When hope is all you have. That makes a good summary statement for the psalmist situation in Psalm 42, which we read earlier. And if you don't have it open, please turn there with me in Psalm 42. Now, we don't know for certain the identity of the author of Psalm 42, as it is simply dedicated to the sons of Korah. However, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he is convinced that the author of this psalm has to be King David, and he says of it, The psalm is so Davidic, it smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the marks of his style and experience in every single letter. Now, regardless of whether or not David was the author, I think, uh, as Spurgeon said, I think there's a very high probability David was the author, But whether he was or wasn't, the psalm stands alone. Because if we use David's struggles as the backdrop for this profoundly honest psalm and its honest struggle of life and struggle with God and the struggle with God seeming distant or absent, all of it helps add a meaningful context. And so we will approach this psalm this morning assuming David's authorship of it. Now the setting for this psalm would likely be of David hiding in exile from Jerusalem. And we saw in our children's video here just a few moments ago, one of those circumstances that first caused David to have to go out into the wilderness in hiding. And perhaps it was in just such a scenario that he's thinking of when he pens these words. Now we know from later on in the story of David that as King Saul is hunting him down in the wilderness and David begins to amass these this army of mighty men around him. At one point, he goes up into the northern parts of Israel in hiding in what is today known as the Golan Heights. Now, we're given a clue as to this location in verse 6 of the psalm, where we read, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, This is a location that's being referred to here from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. So while Leanne and I were in Israel, we were able to actually visit the rugged region of the Golan Heights and where Mount Hermon is. And there we saw the headwaters of the Jordan River, where the water bubbles up from underground springs within view of both both of the fenced borders of Syria and Lebanon that all kind of come together in a triangle. And so up here in these Golan Heights where Mount Hermon is, the only place in Israel, by the way, that has snow is on top of Mount Hermon. There's snow up there. And they actually even have a little ski resort up there. It's about maybe the size of Laravir, probably, as far as the lifts go. But that's the one place that has snow in Israel. And so it's from here that the the psalmist, likely David, says he is writing from and he is longing for Jerusalem. He's in exile from it and he longs to return. He longs to go back to worship God in the temple, but he cannot. He is in exile. And so it's likely possible that these springs and the headwaters of the Jordan River is where verse 7 is referring to, the inspiration of it, where he continues Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Now, this is David's highly poetic way of saying, I feel like I'm drowning. 
I feel like I'm drowning in these waves. And he was trying very hard to ride the waves of the storm, but he was being overwhelmed. He felt like he was going under for the last time, unsure of how much energy, how much breath he had left to keep swimming. His energy is depleted, his heart is heavy, and his soul is incredibly burdened. He feels like he's drowning. Have you ever felt like you were drowning? Not literally, of course, but in your own distress, anxiety, depression, or tears. Have you ever felt like you just couldn't catch your breath? Well, that's how David felt in verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night. And as if his internal grief wasn't bad enough, he also had external tormentors. So internally, he's, he's just in grief, he's weeping, but then in verse 3 he continues, Well, men say to me all day long, where is your God? And so here he's, he's struggling, but then he has people from the outside mocking him. You believe in God so much, you've worshipped him, where is he? Why isn't he helping you? Where is your God? It's the age-old adding insult to injury. And David just can't win. And so here we see that, first off, David is in exile. He's longing to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem, but he cannot. He's overcome by his grief and his tears, and he's being taunted by his enemies, saying, Where's your God, David? Why isn't he helping you? And the worst part was that David didn't have a good answer for them. As we see in verses 9 to 10, David says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? And so here we see that David feels completely forgotten by God. And so it's not surprising that he doubted the stability of his very soul. His soul felt untethered, unanchored, like it was just being caught up in this torrent, in this raging storm, being washed away. And so if we look at the first half of this repeated refrain in verses 5 and 11, he's talking about his, his soul being in mortal agony and in peril. He says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Now, the Hebrew word for downcast means to be cast down in the pits, to feel low or troubled. And then the Hebrew word for disturbed means to cry aloud, to make a tumult, to rage, to roar, or to mourn. So it's this idea of just a blender of emotions. And, and they can go up, they can go down, there can be a roar, there can be a whimper, but it's just distress, distress and anguish. And this is how his soul is feeling. It's just all over the place. Now, these are the very same types of words that the Lord Jesus used when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he said, Now my heart is troubled, and my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And it is that combined heaviness of heart and soul and mind which creates doubt and despair that drains us of all energy and vitality. So after setting this stage for this psalm of, of how low David really is, I don't think we can truly grasp the feeling of this psalm 
of how low he felt in his emotions. But he was down in every conceivable and possible way. And so let me just ask you the question this, the question this morning as just consideration for yourself. Have you ever been in such a place? Have you ever felt like David did, where, where your soul was in distress? This wasn't just a, a momentary thing. This was a spiritual thing. You feel like you're drowning. Further, because of this, it feels like God has forgotten you. Like, like you're just out on your own, and God's not anywhere near, and he's not paying attention to you. Where it seemed like your enemies were just walking all over you, and that God had abandoned you. Have you ever been in a place where you wondered how a tragic event has been allowed to happen? Why did God not intervene? Or a time when you stepped out in faith and it just seemed like everything fell down around you. You knew it was the right thing to do. You believed, you'd prayed, you stepped out and it just seemed like everything went wrong. Those times when it just seems like God isn't hearing or answering your prayers. Have you ever been at such a time and such a place? Well, if you have, or perhaps some of you feel a little bit like that right now, then this brutally honest psalm is just for you. Because I love about God's word that it doesn't sugarcoat our problems. It doesn't try to diminish what we're experiencing or what we're feeling. Uh, This psalm certainly does not. The psalm also doesn't give us just easy answers or quick fixes to our problems or when we're down. But what it does give us is what our souls need most. And that is a source of hope, real hope, in troubled times. And so here are the three principles that I'll draw out from this psalm of David. The first thing is this. We must search for hope in the right place. We must search for hope in the right place. Now, despite his distress, David never lost sight of where his hope came from. In verses 1 and 2, he writes this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And so here we see that in spite of his desperate situation, despite his grief, despite his anguish of soul, David knew that he could not find true hope or help from any other source or any other place or any other people. He had to find it in God alone. And here he draws on this analogy of a deer. And he's likely thinking of a deer that's been pursued by enemies, perhaps hunted. And so it's been running for a great distance and now it's panting, it's thirsty, and it's it's desperately searching for a source of water to quench its thirst. And this is what David is saying. "My, My soul is so thirsty right now. I've been on the run for so long. I need living water to quench the thirst of my soul. So when we return to verses 5 and 11... David here speaks, actually, almost in the third person, to his own soul. He's he's speaking now within himself, and he reminds himself and his soul of where his true hope is found. Listen to what he says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, in Psalm 62, and this being a psalm that we know for certain was written by David, 
he again speaks to his own soul in almost the identical way, saying there in verses 5 and 6, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. And so here we see that David recognizes that true hope comes from God alone. And so therefore, when we're desperate for hope, we must go to God alone. We must search for the hope in the right place. So we must go to God. And this is the first and important step. Because as we know, many people search for hope, but they're searching in all the wrong places. They're looking for for human solutions to our problems, for our distress. And, And we go to all these other places to find hope rather than to God. But it can only be found in God alone. So like David, may we flee to him in our times of trouble and distress. Now secondly, we must remind ourselves of who God is and his promises to us. So in times of distress, we must remind ourselves of who God is and of his promises. Now, we've just read how David preached to his own soul, reminding himself that God alone was his savior and his refuge. And then again in verse 6, David says, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. And so when we are downcast, we need to deliberately engage in remembering God and in his promises. You see, it's so easy to forget God and his promises in our times of trouble, isn't it? It's when we're all mixed up and we're feeling low and we just forget everything that God has done in the past, everything he's promised us in the present and for the future, and we just forget. They just flee our minds. And so we must deliberately remember God and his promises. I like how Eugene Peterson put it in the message. He says, When my soul is in the dumps, I rehearse everything I know of you. When my soul is in the dumps, I rehearse everything I know of you. It's like the hymn we sang earlier. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. We rehearse these things. We rehearse God's promises. Now, why does this help? Why does it help to rehearse God's promises? Well, it's because God is always faithful to keep his promises. The Bible tells us God is not a man that he should lie. Every one of God's promises will be kept. Not one of them will go unkept. God cannot lie. So when he has promised us something, he will keep his word. And so when we remember what God has promised and what he has done, he will do it. Hebrews 6.18 tells us this. It is impossible for God to lie. And then later in Hebrews 10.23 it says, So therefore let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, Let a man feed for a month on the promises of God, and he will not talk about how poor he is any longer. For many people say, oh, my leanness, how lean I am. It is not their leanness, it is their laziness. If you would only read from Genesis to Revelation and see all the promises by God to all his people everywhere, if you would spend one month feeding on the precious promises of God, you wouldn't be complaining how poor you are. 
You would lift up your head and instead proclaim the riches of his grace because you couldn't help but do it. In the classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, the two pilgrims named Christian and Hopeful, they're on their way to the celestial city when they foolishly decided to leave the king's pathway and strayed into the territory of the giant called Despair. He then captures them and he takes them into Doubting Castle where he locks them up in his dungeon. And day after day, he would come down into the dungeon and he would beat them with a club and he would mock them and he finally says to them, why don't you just kill yourselves because you're never escaping from this place. And so taking all of this to heart, Christian is in the lowest point of his entire journey. And he despairs even of life, and he decides that, yes, he is going to take the giant's word, and he is going to kill himself. However, hopeful, ever hopeful, decides that, no, this is not the way out, and he dissuades Christian by reminding him of all that they've already overcome through the long journey, and that they should therefore continue to endure patiently because perhaps the king has a provision for them that they hadn't yet seen. And so he convinces Christian to hold out. The next day, the giant returns and he sees that they haven't killed themselves. And so he tells them, this is your last day on earth. The next morning, if you have not killed yourself overnight, I will do it for you and I will kill you. And so that night, they spend the entire night in prayer. Then almost at daybreak, Christian suddenly breaks out in amazement. What a fool! What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a key in my bosom called promise, which I'm sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. And so it did. The king's key of promise opened every lock until they made good their escape. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10, to 10, the Apostle Paul shared of a similar experience, which was in fact the inspiration for this experience of which Bunyan wrote. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And then if we jump ahead to verse 20, Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they all find their yes in Christ. For no matter how many promises God has made, they all find their yes in Christ. So stay calm, stay hopeful, hope in God. He is with you now and acting for you, and he will continue to act. It's guaranteed in Christ Jesus. He is the pledge and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so this is how it is for us when we, like Christian and hopeful, are traveling along the pilgrim's pathway, and we find ourselves caught up by the giant of despair, 
And he casts us into this place of doubting castle. And the name is so fitting, isn't it? Because it's there that all of our doubts come to the forefront. Just like David. Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? Why are my enemies prevailing and trampling over me? All of his doubts are coming to the surface. And you know, over this past period of time, these past couple of years, I know I've been finding all sorts of doubts finding their way to the surface. And they find their way into my prayers. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. That's where they should find their way. Because as David showed us, God can handle our doubts. Bring them to him. Let them come to the surface. That when we're in that castle of doubt, and we lift our prayers up to God, he does hear us. And in his time, he will answer. And so it is there that we must remember and rehearse God's promises For though the situation might seem dire or desperate, God who promised is faithful. And he holds the key for our deliverance, which is guaranteed. So we come now to our third principle. And it is this. We anticipate God's deliverance before it has arrived. We anticipate God's deliverance before it has arrived. Returning to David in Psalm 42, and then again to the repeated refrain of verses 5 and 11. Here we see that though David is completely down in the dumps, after preaching to his own disturbed soul, he begins to anticipate God's deliverance by stating, For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So even though we see that right then tears were his food, David began to retune his heart from despair to hope by choosing to praise God through his tears for deliverance and blessings that were yet to come. For because Jesus has already won our victory on the cross, our deliverance and final victory is guaranteed, and yes, it is coming. And so therefore we can begin to praise God before we've even seen the deliverance because it is guaranteed. David's down, but he's not out. He knows that one day he will yet again praise God in the assembly. And so he begins to rehearse this ahead of time. There's a true story of a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was born in 1918 in Kislovodsk. Russia. It was during World War II that he served as the commander of a sound-ranging battery in the Soviet Army. And he was involved in a major action at the front, and he was thrice decorated for personal heroism. However, Alexander in 1945 was arrested because he had criticized Joseph Stalin in private correspondence, which of course had been read, and he was therefore sentenced to an eight-year term in a Siberian labor camp. Now, this eight-year sentence in the labor camp was essentially a death sentence because eight years in a Siberian prison camp in 1945, very few survived. At one point in his eight years there, he was so physically weak, so demoralized, so discouraged that he actually hoped for death. The hard labor, the terrible conditions, and the absolutely inhumane treatment that he received from the guards, it had just taken its toll. He knew that if he simply stopped working, that it was quite likely the guards would come along and beat him so severely that he would die. 
And so he planned to expedite his death by simply stopping his work and leaning on his shovel until the end came. And so he stopped and he leaned on his shovel. But in that very moment, a fellow Christian prisoner who was working alongside him reached over with his shovel and he quickly drew a cross at the feet of Alexander. And then he erased the cross before a guard could see it. Alexander would later record that his entire body, his being, his mind, his soul, was so completely energized by seeing that little reminder of the cross and the hope and the courage that he could find in Christ who had endured that cross. He found the strength to continue on. He picked up his shovel and he kept working. All because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of his living hope in Jesus Christ. As Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. David may have felt unanchored, untethered. His soul was adrift in the storm. But in Christ, in the cross, in this great living hope, we have this anchor to hold us fast. No matter how dark, how dire, how, how just despairing what circumstances we face may be, the cross finds our souls secure, firm, and anchored in Christ. And so when hope is all you have left, remember, we must search for hope in the right place. We must remind ourselves of who God is and of his promises to us. And then anticipate God's deliverance before it has even arrived, for it will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our living hope. And that our souls, which can so easily be disturbed, which can feel untethered, tumbled, and in despair, we find an anchor in you and hope for our souls. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning that you would bring encouragement to our souls. That, Lord, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves today or will yet find ourselves in the future, may we remember this lesson, that the only source of true hope is found in you. So help us to search in the right place. May we rehearse what you have done for us in the past and remind ourselves again and again of your promises because you are faithful to keep them. And then may we begin to praise you for deliverance yet to come and begin to retune our hearts to the victory that is just ahead. And so, Father, I pray that today we would live this out and that you would bring your encouragement and your living hope to each one of our lives, to each one of our souls. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.